It is Sunday. It is July 30th. And our message is sex, lies, and adversity. Waiting for the end videotape, weren't you? Yeah, I never even heard there was such a movie. <laughs> sex, lies, and adversity. Who in here has read the book Pilgrim's Progress? Those of you that haven't are going to be tortured by me because every meeting for the last three or four meetings during this week, I've read you something from Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim leaves, actually his name is Christian. He leaves the city of destruction and he heads out for a wicked gate to enter on the narrow way. And he goes through many trials, toils and tribulations. And I wanted to read you something. He's on his journey to the celestial city. By the way, a man named John Bunyan wrote this in the 1600s, 17th century, from jail. (laughs) And one of the things that blesses me the most about it is this man that was in jail in the 1600s dealt with the devil and was ministered to by the Spirit of God in the exact same way that you do in 2006. You know, the devil is full of the same lies as he's always been. He tells the same stories. And you can learn from reading about other men of God's lives and how they dealt with it. Watch this. We're in a chapter called In the Valley of Humility and Death. What has happened is Christian has looked up and in the road in front of him is a dragon. And this dragon has the name Apollyon. And I imagine the author borrowed that from Revelation. It's the Greek word for the... Hebrew angel named Abaddon, and it means destroyer. In the book of Revelation, he's a servant of God, but in this book, he's the devil. Okay? So Apollyon is meeting him in the road, and if you can imagine just any story you've ever seen, to see a dragon up ahead of you and to be alone could be a scary thing, couldn't it? And he looks and he begins to wonder, do I retreat? And as he contemplates retreating, just like we do when we face problems, He begins to think about what he's been equipped with. He'd been given a sword. He'd been given a helmet. And he'd been given a breastplate of righteousness and a shield when he entered through this narrow gate. He said, if I turn and run, surely this dragon will attack my backside where I have no armor. So he decided not to run. And he said, well, I could just stand here. Maybe it'll go away. But then he remembered that the Lord of that country to which he had been called commanded him to go forward on the road. And he decided that even if the dragon were too strong for him, his trust in the Lord of this place, word, would certainly carry him through and cause favor with the Lord. Boy, that's a good thing to do, isn't it? Watch what happens. I want you to hear the lies the devil tells him. Apollyon speaks to Christian. He says, You have done according to the proverb. You have gone from bad to worse. You have jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. But it is common for those who have accepted your king's promise and given themselves to his service after trying in that way for a while to give him the slip and return to my dominion. You do the same and all shall be well. What's he telling him to do? Give up this Christian wall. It's easy in the world. And many have done it. I guess that's before that church created that greasy grace doctrine. Christian responded, My Lord has taken my burden and given me peace. I have given Him my trust and sworn my allegiance to Him. If I go back now, I shall surely be hanged as a traitor. Apollyon, You did the same to me, but I'm willing to forget it. If you will go back and be loyal to your former master. Anybody hear any familiar voices in this? Christian says, What I promised you was in my youth before I knew any better way. But now the prince I serve is able to absolve me and pardon all that I did while I was in your service. And besides, to tell you the truth, Mr. Apollyon, I like his service, his wages, his service, his government, his company, and his country much better than yours or all that you can promise. And you have never been one to keep your promise. I am a servant and I will follow him. Boy, aren't you proud of Christian at this point? The devil will resort to the harshest of tactics. Christian's undissuaded at this point. He's going to carry on. Listen to where the devil goes next. That is pure sentiment 
Consider again in cold blood what you are likely to encounter in the way you have chosen. You know that for the most part, His followers suffer reproaches, perils, weariness, stripes, stonings, imprisonment, pain, and death, all because they oppose Me and My kingdom. Think of how many of them have been put to a horrible death, and your Master never came from His mysterious, invisible, exalted dwelling place to deliver them. How can you count His service better than mine? Not many of my servants have ever been martyred. All the world knows very well that I deliver either by power or by fraud those who have followed me from your Master and His power. And be sure, I will deliver you. Christian's response is where our sermon comes from today. Christian says to him, When he for a time does not deliver his servants from their trouble... It is for their good. It strengthens their trust in Him and their faith, their love for what is right, and affords them the opportunity to show the sincerity of their love and add to their rewards. And as for the death you speak of, it is only temporary. He delivers His servants out of death, and He gives them perfect life beyond. His servants do not expect immediate deliverance from petty dangers and discomforts of this perishing world, but are willing to wait on the Lord, knowing full well that they shall be more than well rewarded for all of their sufferings when He comes in His glory with His holy angels. Pollyon says, but you have already been so unfaithful to Him. You're steadfast. You're going to make it in the way, right? And what does the devil begin to tell you? But you're already such a failure. Come on, am I the only one that have ever heard those words? Wherein have I been unfaithful? You stumbled and fell in the sloth of despond. That's depression, friends. You turned aside out of the way to legality's house for help at the advice of one worldly wise man. You slept and lost your book on the way. You ever forgot God's Word in a trial, in a circumstance? You were ready to turn back at the sight of the chained lions. I know none of you have ever been afraid at what the Lord's called you to do. And when you talk of what you have seen and heard in the way and all that your Lord has done for you, it is with a certain desire for vain and inward glory. Yeah, Jude, even when you did get it right, it was just out of selfish ambition. Y'all never heard those words? The reason I can relate to this is because it's written in the 1600s and yet I could have written it yesterday. Christian's response blesses my heart. This is where we're going to depart and get into some of the words. He says, yes, sir, all that you have spoken is true and much more what you have failed to tell. And yet my Lord is merciful and he will receive me into his celestial city. They go on in battle and, well, you'll have to read that for yourself. I know what it is like to try to stand for God, to be in the narrow way with suffering on one side and glory on the other and be opposed by the enemy. He tells us all the same lies. This trouble is your own doing. God will not deliver you. You've already failed Him, and when you have succeeded, it was with a wrong heart. I tell you what Jesus said. Agree with your enemy quickly. You just say, yes, sir, that's true, and all the more that you forgot to say, and I'm still going to step on your head. Right after this, Christian puts the sword to Apollyon, and he wins. wasn't that he wasn't struck down, but the righteous are struck down, and rise again. I want to talk to you this morning about Psalm 34. Y'all still awake? Y'all mind that I'm reading to you children's stories with adult truths? How can you start a sermon that says sex, lies, and adversity, and then read the children's book, huh? Y'all in Psalm 34? Not all of you are there. I hear pages turning. That air conditioner beats me to death over here. Psalm 34 says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. I find out God has a special heart for the afflicted. Tell me, all of the encounters that you remember Jesus having that were of a positive kind, that didn't end in a woe unto you type statement. Were they with those that were well or with those that were afflicted? 
My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. We'll preach this another time, but you can redefine fear. Fear is false evidence that appears to be real in the moment. The devil has just told Christian on the narrow way, everybody who goes this way dies. Everybody who goes this way has to contend with me and you can't be delivered. False evidence. But boy, it can appear real, can it? God delivers us from those. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Here's the verse I wanted to get to. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. When is it that God hears us? When is it that He is closest to us? Does the Bible not say a broken and contrite heart He will not despise? See, when we cling to our strength, when we have chariots, we have horses, and when our army outnumbers the enemy, where can there be glory for God? Where is there room to credit Him with the victory in the battle? So you will find in God's army, you are always outnumbered. The enemy always has more chariots, and it always looks hopeless. Because our faith, our trust in Him demands that we face those very circumstances, acknowledge them, and say, yet He is able to perform that which He has promised me. That's the hope to which we were called. I want to talk to you about God's people for a moment. Israel, they're in the news constantly, right? The Jews are the most persecuted people on the planet. And yet they're the most productive people on the planet. In A.D. 70, the Roman siege master, later to be emperor Titus, leveled the city in the first Jewish war. Three years later, their last stronghold at Masada fell. Seventeen centuries followed that of conquerors coming through Israel. But God had a promise. The promise was stated in many times, in various ways, that His nation would survive. In the 1880s, Zionism. This is a Jewish desire to make Aliyah, to go up to Israel, to ascend back to the place where God had called them to be, began to revive. And in 1914, Debbie's forefathers talking about Debbie Mays, the British Kingdom issued a decree called the Balfour Declaration. They realized that in the Scripture, all the way from Iraq, north through Assyria, east till I don't even know how far, way past where present-day Jordan is, should be Israel's because it was a biblical mandate. And then a demonic idea was proposed immediately after that was given to Israel. Said, we're going to create a Jewish state and it's going to extend from the Tigris to the Euphrates. It's going to encompass all of the biblical territories. And somebody said, you know, this is just not fair to the Arab people, to the Muslims. I mean, after all, they live there too. You know what we need? Does anybody know what they thought they needed? It's funny how history repeats itself. A two-state solution. Do you know what the first two-state solution was for the nation of Israel before it was even a nation? The Transjordanian Kingdom that is today Jordan. Isn't it funny? That whole area was supposed to belong to Israel. Now it's carved up. Israel doesn't have it all. And the little piece that they do have, what do we want to do? Now we need a second two-state solution. They would leave Israel with less than 25% of what they were promised. And yet none of us even remember Would you call that opposition? I would call that opposition. In May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation. Exciting times, huh? Who has ever heard of such a thing, the prophet said? In a single day, can a nation be born? And it was. The United Nations declared Israel to be a nation on May 14, 1948. Do you know what happened on May 15? Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Lebanon. I'm sorry, where do all of the world's terrorists come from today? Well, let's read that list one more time. Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Lebanon. 
attacked Israel on May 15th. The nation was not one day old. And yet they still stood. They beat every nation that came against them. 1964, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, that is today the Palestinian Authority, was formed under a dictator terrorist named Yasser Arafat. Dedicated to committing terrorist acts in Israel. After feats of terrorism in the 60s that didn't work in 1967, there was a war where Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, and Syria attacked Israel in June of 67. And in six days, Israel defeated all of these nations, much larger, much stronger. By the way, all of these attacks were attacks. Israel never fired the first shot. Then between 67 and 73... It committed more terrorist acts. In 1973, on the holiest day of Israel's year, where they're all commanded to fast, they're all commanded to lay down everything that they do on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, in the morning just before light. Who attacked? They have to read the list again. Egypt, Syria, and a coalition of countries to wipe out Israel. And yet Israel still stood. They're attacked and they win. They're attacked and they win. They're attacked and they win. Just in round numbers, do you have any idea how many people hate Israel that's surrounded by its borders? How many people's religion and nationalistic pride are destructive? There are 600 million Arab Muslims that surround the nation of Israel. You know how many Jews there are in Israel? There's less than there are in New York City. A little less than 6 million. I went to Israel in 2004. And the statistics that I got, by the way, I promise all of this relates to you, so listen closely. You might even write some of these things down. The statistics that I got said from 2001 to 2004, how many terrorist attacks do you think there were in Israel? How many have we had in the last four years? Oh, that's right. We had September 11th. That's a big deal, isn't it? Most of us still have bumper stickers on our car because that one attack, it, it was a big deal for us, wasn't it? In those three years, from 2001 to 2004, that I gathered statistics for, Israel had 21,657 separate attacks of terrorism. Since there's 6 million people there and there's 265 million people here, if you do the ratio and proportion for that, do you know how many terrorist attacks that would equate to here? 1,191,135. Do you think if we had that number of terrorist attacks, we might be a little more serious about the problem the world faces? It's always okay as long as it's somebody else's problem. By the way, in those 21,000 attacks, 963 Israelis died. You say, well, more than that died in our one terrorist attack, right? Remember, there's almost 300 million Americans. There's only 6 million Israelis. If that same attack had occurred here, proportionate to our size, 52,965 people would have died. Would that get your attention, you think? Wouldn't you think that such consistent oppression, consistent adverse, wiped the people from the face of the earth? Into their death, some 650 people were seriously injured in those three years alone. I'm sorry, 6,300 people which equates to over 350,000 that would have to be injured here for us to feel it with the same ratio and proportion. I want to ask you something, though. With all of this pounding on God's people, the one people on the planet that are said by the Scripture to be God's chosen people, wouldn't you think that this would relinquish them or rather command them into poverty? Wouldn't you think that this would mean they were a war-torn, riddled nation? not able to produce anything. All of the nations surrounding Israel have oil. Israel has no oil. In fact, the 600 million Arabs that surround Israel, just from their oil sales alone, produce $300 billion in gross domestic product from oil alone. Then they scrape together another $300 billion from other things. So get me there. We have... 600 million people producing 600 billion 
dollars of gross domestic product, including oil. That means every Muslim surrounding Israel produces an entire thousand dollars a year. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? They're the aggressors. They're the attackers. They're the ones with all the numbers of people. Israel, God's people, the people that correspond to you. Smaller in number, smaller in size, always attacked. Six million people in Israel produce $140 billion domestically without oil. That's $20,000 a person. Wouldn't you think that all of that adversity in their lives would produce poverty? Wouldn't you think that all of that hardship would beat them into the earth? I mean, after all, everybody around them wants to drive them into the sea. They face Apollyon on the west, in the east, in the north, in the south. And yet they exist by God's powerful Word and are blessed even in their adversity. What could Christians learn from something like that? So you're pressed. Maybe even as Paul said, hard pressed on every side. Beat down but not crushed. Persecuted but not abandoned. We're going to find out that although Israel is only 50 miles wide in some places, never any longer than 300 miles from north to south, from the furthest points, the whole nation of Israel would fit in our Minnesota eight times. And yet they stand against the strongest Muslim nations in the world alone. In Psalm 119, verse 67, we find a really beautiful scripture. It's worth reading. I mean, when you're there. Start in verse 65. Do good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment. For I believe in your... Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. You are good. And what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all of my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. Hear this, saints. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than a thousand pieces of silver and gold. The heart that is born God can look even in your adversity, even in your affliction, and see God's hand at work. No other nation more persecuted on the planet than Israel, and they outproduce everyone around them. What should that be a resounding signal? These are God's people. No matter how far they're beat down, no matter how many times stricken down, yet will they rise. You've been grafted into Israel. You have that same royal sap flowing through your veins. So when you're beat down, what is that an opportunity for? For everybody to see God is with you and that you stand by Him. Let's talk about God's book for a minute. We talked about God's people. How about the book that you're holding in your laps? It was written on material that perishes, yet it has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. It has been burned, banned, and outlawed all the way from Nero to the present day. You realize it is still illegal to have a copy of a Bible in China? Illegal in the Sudan? Oh, here's a little secret. Don't tell anybody. Until 1869, it was illegal even in Rome, unless it was in Latin. wonder why that was. Its pages burn with truth, eternal, yet they glow with light that is sublime. Voltaire noted that within a hundred years, Christianity wouldn't exist. Voltaire died in 1778. Less than 50 years later, the Geneva Bible Society turned Voltaire's own printing press and his own house into a Bible distribution center. No other book has been so chopped, so knifed, so sifted, so scrutinized, and so vilified. What other book on philosophy or religion or psychology, either in classical or modern times, has been subject to such mass persecution and ridicule as the Bible? 
And yet the Bible is still loved and read and studied by millions. There's no other book in all literature that is its equal. Wouldn't you think that a book that has been banned in so many countries, that the men who first printed it were burned for doing so, wouldn't you think that this book would not prosper? Second Timothy 3 says something powerful. This is about God's economy. We are so quick to cling to certain truths about God. Don't you love that there's forgiveness for your sin? Don't we love the mercy? Don't we love the grace? Sloppy agape. Greasy grace. We'll take all we can get. We love the things that are easy in the Word. We run to them. We quote them. We raise up pastors that will tell us what our itching ears want to hear. They build denominations based on hymns and donuts. And yet, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith or trust in Christ Jesus. Well, maybe that's just an isolated Scripture. Maybe Paul was talking just to Timothy's audience, right? He was writing to Timothy. Maybe this was just for Timothy's church. Don't you love when theologians explain away what you know to be true? 1 Peter 4.12 says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Did you hear that? Boy, wouldn't you like to take out your Sharpie and highlight that one? So that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Suffering now means glory then. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of the glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear His name. The nation that bears His name has suffered more than any other nation, and yet they prosper beyond any other nation. Their gross domestic product is 23 times that of the Muslim nations around them. Attacked on their holiest days. Attacked on the day after the nation was founded, and yet they prevail. Could there be a lesson in that for us? I wonder what Jesus meant when He said in Luke 17, 32, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. We started with Pilgrim's Progress on that narrow road facing Apollyon. What happened to him if he tried to keep his life and run the other way? He'd be hanged as a traitor. But if he trusted the God who had called him, and he advanced push through fear, then God would surely deliver him. Could there be a message in that for us? I am very worried. You hear me preach from this pulpit almost every Sunday and rail against the American church. It's not because I'm not proud to be an American. I am so happy I was born in this country. It's because I am worried that America's influence will accomplish for us, for the devil really, what affliction never could. The more he beat the church, the more he beats the church today, the more it spreads, the faster it grows, and the more powerful and sincere it is. But where affluence abounds, so does apathy. We simply don't care. Ten days into a war, we are glued to CNN or Fox News watching smart bombs blow up people on camels. It's great fun. It's like a video game. Twelve days later, nobody even knows what's going on. The entertainment value is gone. We don't care. What the devil couldn't accomplish through affliction, he often accomplishes through affluence. In the life of David, by the way, if you ask an Israeli, who's the most famous of all Jews? They will lie to you. The most famous of all Jews worldwide, bar none, is Jesus, who is said to be the Christ. But a Jew will either answer Abraham 
Moses or most David. And in the life of David, we can see both adversity and blessing. And saints, these things were recorded for us that we might learn from them. Does anybody remember what we preached last week? Wow, put you on the spot, didn't I? It's been on the internet for seven days. I preached with all of my heart. I even broke a sweat up here. almost lost my voice. It's kind of like asking somebody who won the Super Bowl two years ago, isn't it? Not important after the moment's passed. We talked about the secret workings of God. You all remember now, don't you? Because God secretly works through the events of your life, especially the hard ones, to reveal Himself to you. We often mistake that. We don't understand it. It looks as if God is against us. Let's look at David's life. 1 Samuel 16. We're going to stay in 1 Samuel for a while here. Anybody in here ever felt pressed? Come on. Anybody in here ever had a hard time? I mean, Lord have mercy. That's like asking, do you experience gravity, isn't it? Or do you like chocolate? The good news is that that adversity was meant to protect you. Watch the life of David in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the thing a man looks at on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Incidentally, I read you all those things about Israel. Ezekiel 36 says, I didn't pick you because you were righteous. I picked you because you were the smallest and most insignificant. (laughs) You find out God sets up the underdog story from the very beginning. He picked us precisely because we were nobody special. But He saw potential that could power us. Then Jesse called Abinadab and said, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all of the sons you have? Well, They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Where was David when he was called? Tending the sheep. He was so insignificant in his own family's eyes that he was the last to be considered. And then, only after seven failures had occurred and the prophet had to prompt the father. You ever thought your parents didn't love you? They didn't see potential in you? Didn't say great things to you? Well, good. It's a chance for God to show His power in you without your parents, isn't it? Jesse didn't run out and say, please take David. He wasn't even in his thought process. As David's tending sheep, what kind of things does he have to end with? Hmm? Yeah, y'all can speak to me. If you don't, I get my feelings hurt. What what was that, Mandy? Lions. Lions, bears, whatever eats a sheep he had to contend with. The natural elements as a shepherd, right? And he's doing pretty good. In fact, when we turn to 1 Samuel 16, verse 15, we see David in a different place. He's blessed by God when he's out in the field tending sheep. What he has to contend with are natural elements, lions and bears. So he begins to advance. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 15, Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command His servants here to search for someone who can play a harp. wonder who they'll find. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. 
He speaks well and is a fine-looking man and the Lord is with him. David's just gone from contending with the natural elements, rain, water, bears, lions, whatever would try to eat his sheep, adversity in the outer natural realms, to increase his adversity, to deal with spiritual problems. He's now going to lead worship for the king of Israel, do his best to create an environment where the peace of God can dwell. He's advancing. And as he's advancing, so are the number and levels of adversity in his life. He's still a shepherd. Moving to 1 Samuel 17, we see a boy prodigy. 1 Samuel 17, verse 27, 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. That's ironic, isn't it? What's the Bible say about David's heart? It was like God's. What does David's own flesh and blood, his own brother, say about David's heart? Wicked, conceited. Now what have I done, said David? I can't even speak. He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Somehow or another, this lowly boy keeps coming into the presence of the king. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go fight him. Where did David get the idea that he could go fight Goliath? Well, he's going to say it later. He'd been fighting with lions and bears, tending with the natural elements as a shepherd. He'd been fighting with demonic spirits as a worship leader for the king of Israel. What's a nine-foot giant to him? Adversity is increasing in his life. Saul replied, You are not able to go out and fight this Philistine. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. If you were out tending the sheep and your seven brothers who were taller and better looking and more prestigious than you were meeting with a diplomat the Secretary of State of Israel. Could you be jealous? Could you think, why me? Why am I stuck out here in all of this hardship while the princes play in the palace? Could you think maybe God was against you and for them? I mean, isn't that what you hear on TV every day? People with purple hair and the thrones on TV tell you God wants you blessed and if you're not blessed, you're not with God. And that the kind of sickness that Christianity has begun to spew? Why did David find his way into Samuel's eyes? Because there was something in God's preparation for him in the adversity. Why did David find his way into Saul's court? Because somebody saw him persevering in adversity. Why is David being raised as Israel's champion, a boy prodigy, to go out and fight the giant? No one else will fight because he had succeeded in adversity. At this point, as a boy prodigy, he's already experienced opposition from natural elements. He's experienced opposition from the spiritual forces. Now he's going to experience opposition from the enemies of God, Goliath, and his jealous kinsman, Eliab. Y'all know how this story ends, don't you? David goes out and cuts off this giant's head and carries it around like a trophy. Other people give him armor to wear. He said, I can't wear these. This is not how God's prepared me. The man knew who he was. Where did he find that out? Where did he learn to use a sling stone? He learned in the fields of adversity. I was one time offered the opportunity to be paid 
what at the time was more money than I had ever made. To find a beautiful young woman to sing with me. To preach someone else's sermons to the largest churches in the area. That was very tempting. Jim, was that tempting for me? I cried. I struggled over that. I even went and visited the colleges they offered to send me to. And yet something inside me pulled me to a different road that has been full of adversity. But on that road in adversity, I have learned to defend sheep. I have learned to use a slingshot. I have learned to worship and contend with spiritual forces. I'm not a paid orator. I don't work for you. I work for God. And I would have it no other way. Because I can stand here and tell you from personal experience that it has not been the palace places in my life that have made the difference. It's been on that road facing Apollyon. Because I tell you what, after you hear his lies once, you begin to recognize them. And if he knocked you down, but you were raised again and you prevailed, the next time gets that much easier. The problem with the church is it has been so affluent, it doesn't know what affliction is and it's never really contended with the enemy. There is a modern teaching that says that the earth will one day experience the loss of the church. It will simply be sucked away. Some of it would be sucked away. And that once that power is removed, that it was holding back the devil's onslaught in some way, that hell on earth will be unleashed. Let me ask you honestly, lay aside your theology for a minute and open your eyes. Look Do you see a church that is holding back the onslaught of the gates of hell? Do you see a church that would give its life for the gospel? My God, don't give up their line at Piccadilly or Luby's. That's not what we've been called to. That's not what we are. Don't think adversity is something strange. God is keeping you. He's forming you. My father's sitting here on the front row. A horrible experience happened to him. His leg got shattered into a million pieces. And yet that has worked for good in his life. He'd be somewhere else doing something else right now if it were not for that. The man of God can look at adversity in your life and see a blessing in disguise. You can look at the horrible, painful experiences and see God has been steering me. We're going to move on. But as we do, I want you to consider something. If God is steering you through adversity, wouldn't it be much better to get the message in prosperity? Wouldn't it be much better to be close enough with God for Him not to have to prick you in the side with some sharp instrument to get you to turn? Wouldn't it be much better if a preacher didn't have to stand and jab you with the Word of God? You were close enough to know the direction we were going ahead of time? One mention one quick word on this, and then I'm going to move on, I promise. You get right with God when He moves your heart. You know what I told you after the worship service? You lay aside embarrassment. You get right with God in private or He will get you right in public because He loves you. When you see these big scandalous things that happen, that was years in the making, friends. That comes from not getting right in private. We have private meetings in this church. We segregate men from women so that men can talk about men things and women can talk about women things. We don't record the services. We pray. We command everybody there to keep confidence so that men can be honest with other men and women can be honest with other women. you know why we do that? It's a chance to get right in private so that God does not take your sin and folly public. It is a gracious thing to repent. It is a horrible thing to be caught in sin. In 2 Samuel 2... I'll just tell you about it. In 2 Samuel 2, David is united. Actually, not united. He's raised to be king over all of Judah, about one half of Israel. So this shepherd boy has gone from the shepherd to the worship leader to the courtier prodigy guy who 
Everybody looked at it and said, Saul's killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Resistance has increased continually, but so has the anointing, so has the blessing, risen to meet, risen to meet the challenge. When you work out, you might, David starts off with 300 pounds on his bench press. But after a while, 300 pounds is light. So like Matthew, he moves to 315. And at first that is difficult. But as he labors through it, God provides the strength for him to grow and rise to meet the challenge. As adversity increases, so does anointing. So does strength. You are being shaped for God. For this reason, do you look at the bar and go, oh, it's 350. I'm being tortured. No, you see it as a sense of accomplishment. You are excited. You feel powerful from it. And yet in our lives, for some reason, when the adversity increases, when the enemies surround on every side, instead of looking and going, wow, an opportunity to show the power of God. I was born for such a day as this. I've been prepared from my childhood through the present for this circumstance. We start praying that the Lord suck us out or something. That's not the Bible, friends. That's not even the heart of a Christian. In the early church, the elders actually had to come. They say, hey, Devin, look, I'm excited you got this gospel thing. Tony, I'm excited that you got this gospel thing. But try to save your life if you can. They're killing 50,000 Christians a year in the arena. Try to save your life if you can. They actually had to teach that in the early church because they were ready to die. To them, to die was gain. They were excited. Not that they didn't care about their lives. It was just so commonplace that they weren't afraid. Boy, how far has the church fallen? We can't give up our comfortable seats. We're mad if somebody parks in our parking place. And if sister so-and-so sings out a key one more time, we're just not going back to that church. Come on, you've heard it all. You heard me? I said, you've heard it all? Have you said it all? I have. I've done it. I stand before you here preaching to myself. We have to learn to recognize God's working for what it is. After David is anointed king over all of Judah, at this point in his life, he's contended with the natural elements. He's contended with the spiritual forces. He's contended with the national enemies of God as well as his jealous kinsmen. He's had to contend with Saul's opposition, his loyalist. Now Israel and Judah have two separate kings and he's having to fight what amounts to a civil war. And yet, he's blessed by God. Best days in his life. In 2 Samuel 5, David unites the kingdom over all of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7, David brings an ark into the city of God. He's given a Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 8, he begins to lay down all of the enemies of God and put them to death at will. This was a turning point in David's life. For the first time in David's life, he's not contending with bears and lions. He's not having to contend with fierce spiritual forces fighting daily. He's no longer having to contend with Saul trying to kill him. He's no longer having to fight to unite the kingdom. All of the warfare is suddenly giving way to peace. Wouldn't you say, oh, happy day! What a good thing, right? You would think so. David had always faced increasing opposition. But now he had begun to eliminate his opposition and prosper. He's being blessed by God. No more natural elements. He's in an ivory palace. No more national enemies. He beat everybody. No more jealous kinsmen that can't speak against the king. No more Saul. Saul, the hero that he is, has fallen on his own sword. No more major civil war or civil dissent. He's blessed by God on every side. Wouldn't you think this would be the pinnacle of his existence? Come on, saints, you just got the $300,000 a year job. You just got the car you wanted. You just left your wife for a newer model. She's all siliconed out, and you think, man, this is as good as it gets. Everything that the world would look at and go, he's blessed! 
Everything that the worldly church would look at and go, He's blessed. Sometimes adversity is what causes us to prosper in the kingdom. After all, you strike the shepherd, scatter the sheep, and the sheep go out and make more Christians. When Stephen got stoned, what happened? Not stoned. Stoned. What happened? Believers ran out of Jerusalem. And they spread the gospel everywhere they went. The first time they began to actually fulfill the words of Jesus. So was it blessing that caused them to fulfill the words of Jesus? No. It was adversity. What in your life do you think will cause you to fulfill the words of Jesus? When you have so much money that you don't have to pray for new things? When your health is so good that you never have to pray for healing? If you had everything, what is it that you would trust God for? Perhaps we should praise God for the things we have to trust Him for. The most important function of adversity, though, is not just the resistance that makes you stronger, although it does. That's not the most important function. The most important reason that you... No, the most important reason that I, that Eric Stevens, needs adversity in his life is it keeps me focused on the battle. If every play was a touchdown, you might forget to run as hard as you can. You might forget to block as hard as you can. It's the adversity that makes you focus on the battle. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 11. Nick, I promise not to lie to you about the number of scriptures before we close. We're going to read from 2 Samuel 11. Then we're going to read two more scriptures. And then my word is my bond. We will close. That's not a promise benefit. That's a warning that this is all you're going to get. You better soak it up. Second Samuel 11. Starting in verse 1. In the springtime. Boy, isn't the spring a wonderful time of year? Little rabbits running around doing their thing. Little flowers popping up everywhere. (laughs) That was funny, wasn't it? It witnesses to the whole earth about the restoring power of God. Doesn't it? Exciting. New life everywhere. The frozen tundra turns into something green and beautiful. Springtime. But the Bible says in the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Why did the kings go off to war in spring? During this restorative time, this beautiful time, there was something worth fighting for. Who wants to go fight over ice? Ask Napoleon. He invaded Russia in the winter, didn't he? That was a mistake. Who wants to go fight in the winter? In the spring, kings would go off to war. But what did David do? He stayed home. Why do you think David stayed home? He just built a pretty nice house. He got his bass boat just like he wanted. He had all the books lined up he wanted to read. All the things he'd been waiting all of his life to do. To have the ease and the luxury to be able to do. I mean, after all, he had worked hard as a shepherd. He had worked hard as a courtier. He had worked hard as a soldier. He had worked hard as the king. Doesn't he deserve some time just to sit back and relax? Come on, you've heard this. Men of God don't retire, friends. Don't you just deserve some leisure, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands? What happens? David suddenly found the time to do things that he never was meant to have the time to do. It's springtime. That's not when you send your servants off to war. It's springtime when the king goes with his army off to war. By the way, there must have been a battle to fight somewhere or he wouldn't have had to send Joab. How many times have you sat out of the battle thinking another brother will handle it? Should have been kneeling beside someone praying and found time to watch Hell's box office or skin the max. Hmm? There's always a battle to fight somewhere. But when we get our eyes off of that, we find time to get our eyes on other things. I thank God for the adversity in my life. 
because it does not allow me time to get my eyes on something else. And whenever I have periods of prosperity, I have to stick close with the brothers because they help me keep my eyes where they should be and my thoughts where they should be. It's important, saints. I taught last night or the night before on 1 Samuel 14. Jonathan and his nameless armor bearer. It is so important that you have people that will lock with you, heart and soul, arm in arm, and say, let's go accomplish God's will. Because there are times in your life where it just doesn't feel like something you should do. We all quote the verses that say we don't walk by sight or feelings, but by faith. But do we live that way? It's springtime. He's supposed to have gone off to war. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Cassidy and I have a problem. A shared problem. Not a problem with each other. Matt's going to tackle me here. I have trouble sleeping at night. I promise it's not a guilty conscience. At least I hope that's not what it is. I can't unwind. But I've learned something, saints. I don't get up out of bed and go do anything other than read. Because late at night on TV, there's just not that much that's edifying. David's supposed to be in a battle. But he's found himself in the evening walking on a roof. He's not even supposed to be here. And it's on this roof that he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. You think that's a mistake? That's a coincidence? Why couldn't she have been a 500-pounder? Unable to distinguish body parts for the number of rolls. Wouldn't that have been nice? Oh my God, that temptation and opportunity don't meet. But you have something to do with that. You can't sleep? Don't turn on the TV at 2 a.m. There's nothing on there that you should be seeing. You're lonely and a little bit curious? Stay away from your computer, man. Go pick up your Bible your basic instructions before leaving the earth. There's a war to fight. And you better have your eyes on the battle. How easily we are distracted. You remember Peter couldn't pray even for one hour? He was with Jesus and couldn't pray for one hour? Oh, but I'm sure you're all stronger than Peter, right? You don't need to hear these kind of words. You don't need to be fanned into flame or stoked, do you? It's okay, I do. So I'll listen to myself. The woman was very beautiful, of course. And David sent someone to find out about her. Uh Uh-oh, lust has entered the picture. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Oh, it just happened to be somebody he had admired for a while, huh? Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him, and he slept with her. He's in a place he shouldn't be. And so lust has entered, a desire he's not allowed to have. I think that's in that pyramid on the wall right over there. And that lust has led to adultery. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. I want to tell you a secret, friends. Whether she had gotten pregnant or not, it had conceived something in David that is not easily put to death. You know, the Bible says if you rescue a hot-tempered man, you'll have to do it again. Well, that's not the only kind of sin that is habit for me. You better be at warfare. We were called to warfare. And men, you are leaders in warfare. Your wife is supposed to lock arms and follow, but you are supposed to lead. What happens when the husband just lays on the couch? Pull your whole family right down to hell. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Or it gets bad and worse. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, Now how? Asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. You know what that's Hebrew for? They made small talk. Hey Keith, how are you? Things going okay? Doesn't really care. He's got an evil manipulation stirring in him. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. (laughs) There's a little metaphor. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. 
But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. I want you to get something. Do you know why Uriah didn't go to his house? Because there was a battle to fight. He didn't want to be disheveled. Do you think he didn't love his wife? Come on, have you ever been away from home very long? Do you think he wasn't eager to get back home? Of course he was. But there was a battle he was supposed to be fighting. I don't have time to read you all of this, but let me tell you. David says, go put Uriah at the front of the line. That's an honor for Uriah. He's excited. Then David says, then withdraw. He's trying to get somebody else to murder to cover up his sin. Talk about how wicked is that? How horrible is that? That's not the point. I want you to think about the circumstances under which this occurred. If David had been fighting, this series of events never would have happened. Beware of your leisure. Beware of your affluence. God told Israel in a very graphic chapter of Ezekiel, I have showered you with gifts. I found you naked and bleeding in a field, and I have clothed you and honored you and treated you as a wife, but you have taken my gifts and hoard yourself out to the nations. And instead of receiving payment from them, given my gifts to them to engage in your harlotry. He's like, golly, that's graphic. That's horrible. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about taking the blessing in your life, the fact that you don't have to work from bell to bell, the fact that you are not suffering for the gospel, and used it for immoral purposes. Well, what is an immoral purpose, Eric? I don't have sexual immorality in my life. What did Peter get rebuked for? Oh, no, Lord, never. Get behind me, Satan. You always have in mind the things of men. It's immoral to spend your time doing things that God would not want you to do. I'm excited about the freedoms our church has learned about. It disgusts me if the freedoms are not used in a way that is something God would want to do. Guys, it is battle time. Our lives are on the line. People that you love, their lives are on the line. I believe that in this group, what God is doing is forming a core. He told me, He told this whole church, that He would draw precious metals from the earth, that they would be drawn to this place so that He could form. I believe that what you're seeing formed here is a group of warriors will not compromise. That's not because we're perfect. Not by a long shot. But it's because we are willing. It's time to realize, where are you in the battlefield? Have you stayed home while the others were fighting? Are you on the back of the line when you should be at the front in the fierce part of the battle? How long will you prepare before you swing your sword? Especially you theologians in here. You can quote so many scriptures. You can talk about... Intellectual framework. How long before you pick up the sword to use it for what it was intended for? The enemy. It's time, saints. Now is the day. Remember, Nick, I told you two more scriptures, right? This message is Nick's fault, by the way. Not because he's not doing well. Nick was reading to me out of Psalm 119 the other day, and I'll be darned. I didn't hear Psalm 119.67 and they got my wheels to turn. Thank you, Nick. That's how we spur one another on to greatness. Psalm 17.17, my little boy read loud and proud. And loves at all times. A brother is born in adversity. How do you find out who your brothers are? Adversity. Everybody loves you when things are going well. I sat at a table with that man when the expense account would buy everybody's meal. The table was full then. That's not the times of glory, though. It's when you have no expense account and when you have no money. How full is your table? Brothers are born in adversity. You find out who your friends are in the foxholes of life. And if people only love you for the good times, they're not your brother in the kingdom. If you only love people for the good times, they're not your brother. If you find yourself falling short in this message in some way, and I'm sure you have. If you've been honest, if you've sat here and you've listened, then you have to have found yourself falling short. 
and realize I preached this because I'm falling short. But do you know what that makes us? We're in adversity and brothers. This is the family of God. We don't stone those who don't live up 100%. We help them. And friends, that's all of us. I'm going to read this last scripture, like I promised, and close. Turn to Isaiah 30. Tell me when you're there. Okay, two people in our whole church are there. Who's there? There. All right, good. Isaiah 30, verse 19. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious He will be when you cry for help. As soon as He hears, He will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, you will, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Adversity will protect you because it will build your inner man. You will learn to trust God not just with the bears, but with the spiritual forces, the national enemies, and even if the king himself faces you down. Adversity will protect you because it will focus you on the battle. Adversity will protect you because, like last week taught you, you will start to hear your teaching in the adversity. When something tragic happens, instead of saying God is against me, start to consider whether or not you are with God. And if you are, then it's just an exercise in how to obtain glory. If you aren't, it's time to repent. I don't know whether or not in the areas God has been testing you, you found yourself to be faithful or unfaithful. But that's what testing's for. Today you can get right. There are brothers on your left and right who have stood in affliction with you. Friends, there's a biblical truth that we're going to leave this sermon with. God never delivers you out of trouble. Never, never, never. Even when the Bible says that, if you read carefully, He delivers you through trouble. Israel was said to be taken out of Egypt, and yet you see they walked right through it and had to cross the Red Sea to do it. It never works by, oh, you're just going to be set on an island in peace. That wouldn't be good for you. God will sustain you in it and cause you to overcome it. Stand up, overcomers. Let's pray.